Hello, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello, and my name is Ashling. Another very special guest tonight. I have so many questions, probably more so about myself, actually, in this episode, because... <laughs> I don't fully understand myself. But anyway, I'm going to explain where I'm going to with this. So today we have Dr. Ganga Sridhar. She is an assistant professor in behavioral science at the London School of Economics, no less. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Ganga is an applied behavioral and experimental economist studying how to change human behavior in a way that can benefit people and the planet. And I think that's what we're all beginning to learn, that if there's a benefit, we are going to do it. We are so genuinely so thrilled that you're with us tonight. So thank you very much for giving up your evening. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. So thanks very much for having me. So we always like to start off asking our guests, where did your first like, spark of joy come from where you thought to yourself, uh, this is probably what I'm going to end up doing for the next few years. I love what I'm studying. I love what I'm talking about. Where did that very first seed come from? The very first seed. Take yourself back. Actually, maybe when this job, <laughs> which is quite far into, I guess, my research career, I've always been interested in environmental issues. Um, I spent a lot of time in nature as a child. We had a garden at home and loads of pets. My grandmom loved cows. So we actually at one point had loads of cows at home, as you do. And I, I think that sort of love of nature, and we used to, I used to go hiking a lot when I was a kid with my parents and friends um, over summers. And so I think that has stayed with me throughout. And I sort of um, left that a bit when I did my undergrad in economics and then development and then public policy. But really, when I came back to university, um, I sort of fell in love with the idea that we, you know, that we, our behavior affects the environment and our environment affects our behaviors. Um, and really where I formally studied that was um, when I did my PhD at the LSE. And then that's sort of what I decided to do for my job. <laughs> and kind of that spark actually came in quite late when I suddenly just realized, actually, maybe just a year ago, I was just like, oh, actually, I love what I do. And that was reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to have a group like that in a day particularly if it's crazy but are we not so privileged that we do something that we love so much no no absolutely and I think we do know from behavioral science that when you're happy doing something it's more likely that you pick it up later and you stick with it and that sort of helps you tide over times where it's harder as well so you're able to pick yourself up because you remember all the happy times or the positives in a way. Yeah, that's yeah. me at three o'clock in the morning on a night shift. I think <laughs> oh, this is really tough, but I really love my job. So it's OK. Power it's okay. through the night shift. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So little, can... little moments of thrills where you think, oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, learning something new every day. Why do you think people are so, I wouldn't even say interested. I would say obsessed with the weather in this country. Oh, well, maybe I start off with an anecdote. I first moved here around now, well, nearly 10 years ago from India. I'm used to hot weather. I come from Chennai, which is, um, you know, 
30 degrees in winter, 25 to 30 degrees in winter. And we think, you know, people get on earmuffs because people think it's cold when it's 20 degrees. So I came here in September and I, um, and I think it was maybe around 15 degrees or something or, or close on 20. It was an unseasonably hot day, as you call it here. And everyone was out in their bikinis in the park and I couldn't wrap my head around it. And then from that moment, I realized, oh, my God, people have a very strange relationship with the weather here. Why do you think we're so obsessed with it? You know, what, where, what, is, the, what is it? Do, are, do people talk about the weather as much in Chennai? I mean, it's hot. So there's less yeah. variability. Mm-hmm. So I think potentially I actually haven't seen any research on this, but it's a really great question. I think maybe one of the things that we're drawn to is novelty and change. So we're very attentive to change. So when you have very variable weather, People pay attention to it because it might determine numerous things, right, from the types of crops you want to sow historically to kind of when is a good day to go um, put the laundry out if you can hang it outside to essentially like, should I go for a walk now or should I wait till 3.30 where there's a slot till from 3.30 to 4 where it's safe and I can actually go for a run. So I think the way we manage our time is so contingent in the way the weather plays out and because it's variable and we're attentive to novelty and, and new influences, that might be why we're often paying attention to it. So it could be this combination of things which makes it a really good talking point apart from preoccupation. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, so I'm convinced as well. So that like, you know, general public have a 24 hour span of weather. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be as we're recording this podcast, it's going to be warm tomorrow. and we'll forget that it was raining today yeah and like we just have 20 like literally 24 hours maybe even 12 hours attention yeah because the old information is not that useful anymore Mm -hmm. so it's not really going to help unless you're actually actively tracking Ah. weather over time so often if there's information which we don't necessarily actively use and deploy it's just not very useful and slowly we tend to forget that's really interesting is that like evolutionary kind of thing non-evolutionary specialist but I think that yeah there might be a good reason for that I mean the other thing is of course norms so something we often forget is maybe we we think of ourselves as you know enlightened individuals who have freedom going about and choosing their day in all these kinds of ways but actually we're quite social we're social animals and what we do like to do is feel appreciated by our social group and the people we care about Um, That could be your colleagues. It could be someone in in a social group that you identify with, like a a group of women at work, maybe, or, you know, um, someone in my profession, like, and in those ways, often in the, at least in the UK, it maybe feels like weather is a good way. It's like a social norm to talk about the weather in a particular group. Yeah. If it's a group of meteorologists, but but also in terms of like, (laughs) I guess the way I talk about the weather to behavioral scientists is how does the weather affect us? Yeah. So in a way, like, I think there's a, there's a social norm overarching in the UK about talking about the weather, the daily weather forecast. It's a way to start conversations. It's a way to start your day. Yeah. It's a form of politeness, I think as well. Icebreaker maybe as well. Yeah. yeah, And it's saying as well that we'll bond people together because we're all experienced in the same weather. So then we have that in in common. So we can be like, oh, yesterday was really, it was really wet. I got wet. Oh, did you get wet as well? And you've got that already (laughs) starting point to say, oh, we shared that experience together. So maybe that's another thing as well. 
and it's quite a personal experience right mm. because it's a personal experience with the weather as well so it, it could act like as quite a good icebreaker it's I never thought yeah. about it as um I mean obviously I don't know anything about behavioral science but um about the usefulness of the information I never thought about it that way because that that information is like something I consume all the time and I and I enjoy mm. it and I have this weird memory for like my other half has the weirdest memory with directions for food. So if there was food yeah. associated with an occasion, he and, and he would, and I would say, do you not remember this one time we were, uh, you know, over in Ireland and uh, we we went this to this place? And he'd say, no, no, no. And I said, you remember, you got a burger there. And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, like... <laughs> food is another really important cultural topic. And, you know, different groups might have very different ways of thinking about food, but also making food and sharing food. And in a way, that's a really nice um, parallel to something like the weather because it's shared. Yeah. Um, and I guess the way you relate to the weather or the types of things you do in particular kinds of weather is also collectively shared. Yeah. You know, so, so that's a, a really good way of potentially thinking about it. Although he will tell you he doesn't share food. <laughs> it's like like Joey from Friends this is what I'm having what are you having (laughs) following on from that then can the weather then impact our behavior particularly something like our mood does the weather have an impact on both of those things yes 100% so in many ways so most intuitively think about how you feel in um in December versus in, 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 the, in the start of spring. So you can have effects which are seasonal. So it might be that particular, the way we organize society and therefore the types of activities and therefore our moods might be contingent on the weather. If it's dark, we know we feel a bit more low. We feel a bit more depressed. If it's super sunny, that's associated with being in a slightly more positive, bright, you know, happy mood. And we actually see that in some sorts of studies that mood affects, for instance, behavior in the stock markets and how people invest as well. So, for instance, uh, people who are happier might want to take more risk and might therefore invest in slightly more risky investments. If you're more um, if you feel a bit lower because um, it's not a very sunny day, for instance, you might feel like a bit less risk taking. Um, There are some studies which try to plot those relationships with respect to the weather and risk taking behavior, for instance, in financial markets. I always think of just the most intuitive way to maybe think about this is like what you do in your everyday life. So, you know, when when it's when it's nice and sunny out in like a place like the UK, people tend to get together. So there's a lot of social activities as well. Um, whereas if it's like a rainy day, you tend to be at home. And I guess you turn inside a bit. You maybe watch something on, on your laptop or you pick up a book, you know, or you try to you decide to cook or something like that where you actually can't go outside. So I think apart from actually the mood, it's how we respond to constraints placed by the weather, which can therefore help us take activities or constrain us in ways which therefore again influence our mood that's mad this is fascinating I wish I had met you 10 years ago and I would (laughs) would have known I I ask myself like questions like this all the time and I'm like I'm like why what or or here's another question for you so I do the weather for my job Mm -hmm. I I will I will tell people the weather and if people ask me I will tell them but yet, frequently, all the time, Gemma, and I know you have this, my family included will say, they said it was going to rain. <laughs> so they never associate me as the source of the information, ever. Mm-hmm. Or 
when I go home, the weather's even more like we live in the east of England, which, you know, to me is practically a balmy climate. In Ireland, the weather is much more variable than it is here. And anytime I go home, <laughs> my mother or father invariably will say something along the lines of, oh, I should have really checked the weather forecast. I don't know what the weather's doing tomorrow. And I'm like, <laughs> so, you know, right here, I'm, I'm right here. I, yeah. I can, I'm, you know, I probably know this because this is what I eat, sleep. But what is that about? They don't associate me with the information, even though they know what I do. And they would tell people what I do, but they don't associate me with the information. That's an interesting observation. Maybe what's going and and clearly I I have not written written a paper on this, so I will not stand <laughs> by this uh, in a period. <laughs> yeah. But uh, maybe what's going on is there is a go to source which they trust for that information. Yeah, and and that's something they've developed as a habit every day. Mm-hmm. So I check the BBC weather app. So and I and I sort of have a look and that's my go to and it's nearly like an automatic reaction. So, you know, I don't check it as often as I should and then I get caught in the rain. But when I do remember, it's not something I consciously do often. It's something that I'm just sort of doing as a matter of what's the weather? Where do I go for that information? I go to it automatically. And in our heads, we have this automatic part of us which is sort of learned behaviors, which we've sort of internalized over time. And that helps us not think about everything and stress about everything. So it's actually quite useful to have that automatic bit. And then there's the other bit, which you could think about as the other extreme. Often in reality, they sort of work potentially together, but that other side, which thinks really about everything. So when you're not on autopilot and you're quite rational or deliberative and you're thinking about the pros and cons and paying attention to the person in front of you and what their background is, you know. So with a question like weather, because it's such a daily activity, it's likely that when they think about it, they're like, what's the normal source I go to? What's my heuristic? Well, like, what, what do I, you know, what's my autopilot response to that? Or, and also potentially you're a single person and there's a source, which is institutional via an app. So potentially they trust that given they already go to that a lot more than potentially your noisy forecast. <laughs> <laughs> Or the person sitting there. Okay, maybe I'm feeling a bit more forgiving of them now that I understand the psychology behind why they don't automatically think about me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think also then, because there are people out there that are very mistrusting of the weather forecast. Um, And so is that also another thing that will come into play? Because I have regular conversations with people in my family and I'll say, oh, it's going to be really windy. And they're like, oh, that's, that never happens. It's never going to be as windy as they say. It's never going to snow yeah, in London. Yeah. I'm like, I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that. And still <laughs> they've got that mistrust in nature about the weather. And I'm like, is it to do with the fact that maybe because the weather in the UK is quite variable and it can change quite a lot, maybe yeah. there's that underlying mistrust about whether the weather forecast is going to be right? I don't know. So I'm going to give you actually a perfect example of this as well was the storm. One of the storm Eunice was one of our last storms. And me and Gemma both actually, Gemma, you delayed your travel plans. I delayed my travel plans. We talked about the storm and we were like, we have never seen anything like this. It's been a whole, you know, we've got over like, Gemma, you're nearly 15 years. I'm 10 years, but I have like, you know, you've studied before that. So you kind of know patterns. We both were like, no way. This is actually a really dangerous storm. You delayed your plans. I delayed my plans. Nobody believed us. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. It was definitely cotton stuff. <laughs> we, we went to the beach and the whole cottage started to rattle. <laughs> so 
yeah no I think that's a really good point so how do people trust information is a really important part of research especially now not just weather information but just more broadly like how do you trust climate information which is linked to weather right like why do people distrust climate projections or uh, political news or um, any sorts of health advice on vaccination so the idea that actually the information we listen to is trustworthy is a really big area of research and there's lots of things which go into that in the context of weather I, I imagine one of the things that matter a lot would be personal experience so if you've been in a situation where you've trusted and planned for something and then there's an unexpected shower then you know the first time you're like okay now if this happens pretty much every week that at least one forecast is wrong for instance then your perceptions or your evaluation of that reliability based on your own personal experience might lead you to sort of discount some advice because it's noisy in the sense that it's not clear when it's right and when it's wrong and it might just upset people's plans so they're actually attentive to it right this is really you're making me feel like I need to forgive people (laughs) yeah there's usually good reason for a lot of the things you see and usually no good reasons as well which is why it's all so confusing but anyway so yeah another another thing when we think about information is the source and that's often really important and sometimes more important than the information that you actually get Mm -hmm. so um, we call this often the messenger effect where where the idea being that if you ask people to say um, get a vaccine and you have this just on a plain piece of paper and then if you ask someone else to get a vaccine but you have a doctor that messenger just adding the messenger changes how people perceive the message and the potency of that message to be persuasive Mm. potentially seeing someone more credible there which they potentially can trust can change that information so similarly you could think about this in terms of you being the messenger in Mm. terms of you might have a personal relationship with your family and you know they they know times that potentially you might have been wrong or they could put your leg about the weather and then the bbc might be an official source which is seen as more trustworthy overall right so it doesn't have the noise that you come with because it's sort of seen as trustworthy not just by the people involved but potentially people they think are valuable to listen to so in that sense who a messenger is can also determine can depend on what social group is viewing that message i'm gonna have to like start saying something like brand ashling says you shouldn't <laughs> yeah. travel in the storm like i'm gonna have yeah, yeah. to brand myself <laughs> rather than being like the flapper of like why won't you listen to me yeah, I'm gonna yeah, have yeah, to yeah. like I'm gonna I need to change, I need to change my messaging style is yes. actually what I need to, what I need to do yeah so, yeah this is I, exactly it so we see like for instance when when we think about who's a good effective climate change communicator we see that for instance it depends on potentially the political background of the person so they've done several studies in the U.S. for instance which shows that if, if the receiver of the message is a Democrat, they, they sometimes can discount um, messages which are very similar to messages that Democrats might put out, exactly the same message, but by, by a Republican. People who are Democrats unintentionally 
actually pay attention to the Republican because they think that, oh my God, it's so bad that if the Republicans are saying it's it's bad, it must be really bad. But when you have Republicans with the message, they totally discount the Democrats and, and only listen to the Republicans. That's fascinating. So you can have an unexpected messenger effect as well, which can sometimes influence how people listen. Yeah, and then maybe end up focusing on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's grand politically there as well, isn't it? That just works out for them, for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> perfectly if you're a republican it's like well you've mentioned a couple of times climate change now and you know it's definitely i mean gosh so 10 years ago climate change how we were messaging that from our point of view in our day-to-day job is so different to how we are now and i think this subject has become very humbling for me because every time we talk to somebody i learn something more and i realize how much i don't know and actually how much more I should be doing with the knowledge that I already have. I'm not utilizing the knowledge I already have enough. So just tell us about your experience with climate change and behavior. Oh, that's a, it's a big question. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you that question back eventually in terms of how you guys have actually did it, because I'd love to understand that too. So climate change, I mean, I've always been interested a bit in nature conservation and and climate change is necessarily a part of that conversation. As you know, there is quite a reciprocal relationship. So as habitats get destroyed, the the climate changes is climate changes. You also have things like desertification, increased heat risk, things like this. So I think it's, it's a really complex issue where I think climate is one facet of a larger change in trends and what it means to live on earth like and I think the one way of thinking about that is the planetary boundaries framework where you've got basically a loss in biodiversity you've got a change in climate you've got issues around soil fertility so really to think about the issue of really started to think of it more as a multi-dimensional issue and I find that framework a bit useful but with respect to climate change per se I think two to three big findings come out in the behavioral science literature in the early literature there was often since we're talking about information, you know, debates around whether this was a natural or human caused phenomena. And we know that when people often attribute changes in the environment to humans, they feel a bit more outraged, they feel a bit of um, emotional, you know, impetus to change things. So a lot of the early messaging there was to emphasize that this had something to do with us. And a couple of my experiments there also show that when you emphasize the role of humans in causing these negative environmental and conservation outcomes, that can change the willingness of people to take corrective action. And often it's through actually things like anger or sadness, and and often it can be negative. But this can have um, a long-term effect, which I'm increasingly worried about, because that's often the strategy that a lot of people use is to get people to care by talking about how negative it is. And it's a really difficult question because you can't do justice to the scale of the problem without talking about how serious the consequences are. But often what that might lead to is this hesitance to to trust those negative effects because they're not always in your face or immediate because they're distant and elsewhere. So you do see now, I think, um, the risk of heat waves going up. You see um, extreme weather events, whether they're droughts or floods, et cetera. And actually experiencing these extreme events um, make people more sensitive to the perceived risks of things like climate change and also more willing to take action. 
But that puts us in a weird position because if you're yet to feel the effects, you might discount it. And for people who feel the effects, they often didn't cause the problem. So there's often this disjunction between the personal experience or when it's expected to hit you and what's actually happening. And people avoid it because it's such a scary or they think it's a scary issue and they feel powerless. We call this low self-efficacy and collective efficacy where people don't feel powerful enough to change things because it's such a big problem. So given all of this, we're, we're now increasingly it's coming to something you said in the beginning, which is how if it benefits us, maybe that can be a way to, to get in is increasingly there's an interest in talking about more positive stories to address climate change. So um, with my PhD student, we ran um, an experiment where we looked at actually an actor, um, George, who is today in his life, where he was taking more positive actions. So he was sort of in, you know, just he decided, OK, his friends were making fun of him. And he said, you know what, I'm still going to go for the veg option, you know, for a meal. <laughs> he was nervous about getting some pushback from his boss. But he's like, fine, I'll just sign this net zero sort of petition at work, even if it's risky. So we really try to make this about people negotiating with the annoyances and the social pushback that that might involve taking really small, tiny actions to address this issue. And we found that when the protagonist was motivated by the need to do something for the environment, that story was most effective. And importantly, it was a positive story. It wasn't a negative story. And it was a positive story about people taking actions. So in a way, if we can tell more positive stories like this and balance that out with the negative and also talk about what we can do. So the sort of social norming effect. So not just what we should be doing and what we haven't done. So not as much about guilt anymore, but really about, hey, these are the things you can do. This is what we're doing to actually create that social norm um, that it's normal for people to do stuff on climate change. It's not that big a deal. I think then we have a slightly better chance. So my experience in a way has really been trying to move from being worried and trying to convince people that it's happening and it's because of our choices to now We've moved to now a place where I think it's widely accepted by the scientific community that it is human caused. And I think increasingly, it's not a question about, is it down to us? It's more a question of what can we do and how is it going to benefit us? And I think that conversation is moving towards, hey, are there health benefits I can get from taking this action? Are there like, for instance, if I cycle to work, it's lower emissions, if I can manage to do that. Um, not everyone can, but there are other things they can do. Um, you know, cutting plastic. So all these sorts of things. So I think there has been that switch in the way we communicate, or we're trying to explore communicating about climate change, because the worst thing is to alienate people from the issue and get them to avoid it. And I think that's been a failure so far on, on people trying to change that. I think it's really important to say to people, okay, well, these are the impacts of climate change, this is what's going to happen. And it could impact the biodiversity or the nature in this way but then showing them examples of how conservation projects are benefiting and saying well this there are these impacts but actually if we do change what we're doing or if we put these conservation things in place then actually you can mitigate against some of those things and actually have a positive impact and show people the positivity around it which I think sometimes it can be lacking I think it is important to have a little bit of a bit more focus on the positivity to show people that if you do make changes, you can have an impact that yeah. is possible. Yeah, I think it's important to see that you can make a bit of a difference. And I think that's where the challenge often lies. Because in a way, if you think about it, me having 
you know, a low carbon meal or me taking one less flight might not seem like a big enough dent. Um, and that's why it's a collective action problem. It's, it's a social dilemma. And the way we think about it is essentially if one person does it, that's avoided emissions from that one person, but everyone else gets to enjoy that benefit. Where the magic has to happen is if everyone does it, even if it's costly for everyone at an individual level, there's a social benefit to that. So we can think about that as a social dilemma where really the challenge is to get people to think through how is it going to help me and help everyone else? And what are the benefits from doing that a bit more? And that's why I think to do anything around climate change, it requires cooperation across people. And that could be people in your work. It could be people in your family. It could be people in, you know, your friends. It could be um, even bigger. It could be at a city level because you see now lots of cities are trying to think about how do you green infrastructure? For instance, there's um, an increasing interest in things like cycle lanes, car shares, and even, um, you know, the idea that we each need to own a car. Um, if we want to keep on trend, actually, maybe it's better to not own a car and then you just get to, you know, ride whenever you need to, if that's part of your setup. Like if that works for you, of course, if there's no public transport, then I think it does become a question of how do we get that public infrastructure through good train networks, for instance. So it doesn't become about just individuals taking action because this is a collective issue mm-hmm. and it does require big investments. So another way I think is by actually thinking of ourselves not as consumers, but also as citizens, because we do have a right to a particular future and, and you know, we, we should be able to shape that. And, and, you know, kids will also be able to shape that as you've seen a lot of interest in this from, from people who are younger in school who are actually learning climate science in schools. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they kind of know the situation. So I think it's not just the consumption actions. It's also questions on what policies do we support? How do we articulate support for those policies? Um, and how do you make your voice heard there? And I think in the UK, in a way, there is a fair amount of support for a lot of these actions. So it's it's a question of actually the behavior. Why do you think then that there are still people that are reluctant to believe in climate change? And also they are reluctant to make the changes. They might believe that climate change is happening and they can see that there's having impacts, but they're still quite reluctant to make individual changes. Why why would that be the case? Oh, there's a this this that's a really big and complicated question. So I think one of the reasons, well, one of the reasons often it's difficult to make the change is because we're social. So, you know, there might be particular sorts of social norms in place which deter us from changing our behavior, even if we think we should be doing it. So in a way, we might have good intentions, but it might be difficult to do anything about them because, say, our friends and family are like pulling us back a bit or like challenging us on that a bit. It could also just because it's costly. So, you know, a lot of things like insulating your home, you know, which could cut things like energy bills require some upfront investments or costs. And for people to prioritize that requires not just an awareness that that's important, but also some guarantee that those, you know, that support is in place and that it will get done and that it's easier to do. Lastly, it's also because we're just inattentive. So we know, for instance, one of one of the the nudge type approaches in behavioral change, which has worked, which doesn't really go by changing awareness 
or changing really beliefs as much as actually just changing the way we make choices is like the default. So often people, when they're defaulted to say a green energy provider, you know, when you're on you switch or one of your offer, you know, your sites, or if a, if a provider you're with has already defaulted you to a green tariff, people don't change back very easily because they, they're happy to stick with that, but they just don't take the effort to make the switch. So in a way you could think about like setting the thermostat in your house at, at a level, which is actually a level, which is not very high energy intensive, but it's just comfortable for you. So often those sorts of design tweaks can help reduce, you know, the hesitance if things like social norms are an issue. And so I think it's this combination of information, sort of financial support or help, as well as things like clever design. It's that package which is really hitting all those behavioral barriers, which is good information and beliefs, like being able to do it in terms of time and money, as well as actually having clever design, which removes the, the, the pressure from the individual to be perfect, will really get us there. Otherwise, if we expect too much from the individual, it's really hard. Yeah, so it's like so much of what you're saying resonates with me on so many levels. So the last a couple of years has been kind of pre-COVID has been a little bit of a journey for me personally as to my exact role and responsibility in the whole climate conversation what I need to do what I should do more of and there's many things that resonate me what you said first of all I'm somebody who understands scientific papers about the climate because that's my language and I still don't know what to do I am somebody who deeply cares about the climate and tries to make good decisions. And I still struggle with decisions sometimes. I'm somebody that looks at frosts over the winter and know that my children may not be walking their children in a frost. Mm -hmm. I know all of these things. And yet sometimes it can get really overwhelming to know what to do. And we do need help. We do need help. And we also need to make it really simple. So my mantra, as Gemma will know, is that if I make one better decision every day, and if everybody did one better decision every day in the UK, that's 64 million better decisions. And I think the hardest thing that I have been struggling to find an answer with when somebody says to me, I don't know what to do, or what can I do? And I have also felt powerless and helpless Mm -hmm. at that question as well. And my recent thinking has been one better decision a day and have a conversation about it because the more we talk the more we learn I do think there is gaps for like for example we talk a lot about carbon footprint Mm -hmm. but actually and I don't know the carbon impact of this but I often think well I don't really know what my carbon units are a day yeah so how do I average out my carbon how what is that what does that look like like calories like I don't know Let's say I run and I get a meal deal. Maybe there's something in the packaging that I'm picking up that I can help. I I just don't know what my carbon footprint is of that. And I think that we're also lacking in a little bit of help to understand. So we know about climate change, it's accepting. And I'm also beginning to realize as well that those people that don't accept climate change, I need to not waste my time on them because there's many people that do and there's many people that want help. And they are definitely greater than the people that don't believe so I I probably shouldn't be as invested in trying to convince somebody that like our climate is actually changing but you can feel really overwhelmed but I agree with you it needs to be collective and it needs to come from everywhere because fortunately I I haven't had to change anything that I'm shopping or eating recently and I I know that I'm really lucky I feel really fortunate that I haven't had to do that but there's lots of people who have so climate is very low on their agenda 
Yeah, which is why I think it, it has to be something that we just make as as a priority in terms of it shouldn't it should become a norm. It shouldn't be something special that you do. It has to be mainstreamed into your everyday decisions and made easier for you. So on the context in, in on the question of actually not knowing our impacts, the, the simplest way would be something like an emissions footprint, where we just try to at least map one pollutant from carbon. A really complex way of thinking about this, which is probably very difficult to quantify in a reliable way, would be thinking about what's my water footprint? What's my, you know, by land footprint? Like what's the energy footprint, you know? And I think in ways we have many, many labels, for instance, um, which try to give us some shades of each of those things. Like you have an energy star rating. If it's energy efficient, that's an example. Um, you might have actually a rainforest alliance sort of thing, but it can be confusing because it's not standardized. So a big push in the literature is actually to help people with having better information so they can do their choices. But of course, it's very difficult to verify. So some way it comes back to that trust that the label that you have is actually giving you the right information. But that's definitely a start. In the context of domains of your life, I think the big domains where we could really make a difference is to think through is, is food, energy, transport. You know, then there's the whole rest of the stuff um, like material consumption. So how many laptops and phones and electronic devices do you need, <laughs> for instance? And, and where do you put your e-waste? Um, do you recycle it? Um, another thing is actually food waste, which is very important in terms of it cuts not just like your um, financial costs down in terms of the money wasted on food, but also has important emissions implications. So food, transport and energy, I think, are three big domains where there are big implications for, for not just emissions in terms of carbon, but also in terms of actually material consumption and land use and things like water. Mm -hmm. So in that often, let's think about food because it's a very, it's a cultural hot point and, and people are often very polarized when it comes to food. Often, I think that when we think about what are the emissions outputs from diets, there's several papers which show that actually red meat heavy diets, um, especially from things like factory farm meat can be quite emissions intensive. And it's not a question about cutting out as much as actually cutting down. And, and that's actually in keeping traditionally with what people used to do when there wasn't this huge commercialization in cheap meat and poor quality meat available. And, and especially if you compare per capita meat consumption from places like the UK or the US in Europe, compared to other places like India, for instance, which is where I'm from, you'll find a huge difference, which does also mean that your emissions from your lifestyle, which is overconsumption is unequally distributed. So rather than cut out, you know, I would say always try to cut down. So even if you can start off with one less, mm. <laughs> one less meal a day, that's better than doing nothing. And if it is something which you're doing consciously, that might potentially have spillover into other ways you might start to think. So for instance, since you're thinking about what is the emissions impact of my meal, maybe you might start spilling over and thinking, what's the emission impact of, of this additional holiday on the flight? Could I take a train? Am I willing to pay a bit of a, an, an extra cost because it's the train? And often this is where I think you can't avoid the policy question because if your train is fueled by fossil fuels, you know? So I think this is why whatever the decision is, like actually writing to your MP, having conversations with people and actually being a part of that social change, even debating it if you're, 
not sure about what to do, actually having that conversation openly without, you know, judging people too much for holding a position, I think is a, is a good way to think about actually making the change. All of the things that, that you're doing in your community are definitely coming through because as communicators for our job, like we've been, I've been very fortunate with the company that I work for that we have people help us with how to communicate these things or give us advice. So all of this research that you are doing is filtering through, which is really amazing. Yeah. yeah like, and I know I've attended, it wasn't the same talk that Gemma did, but with the Royal Meteorological Society. And there, that was all about as well. How do we, how do you get this into the media? And it has to be positive stories. It can't be scaremongering. The Albert group as well. Yeah. So it's all the research that you're doing actually is getting to where it needs to go, which is really brilliant That's to hear. Amazing. Actually, that, that like, could you guys tell me what has changed in how you've started yeah. communicating about the issue? So one big thing for me has been simplifying it and trying to have an answer and trying to make people like myself included know that all you have to do is one small thing and that's your, your decision. But if we can get everybody to do one small thing as a group, that's lots of small things that make a big difference. I guess I've changed the message in that I try and first of all, like listening to like experts like you, where I know I need to make this a positive story. It has to be a positive story because there's so much anxiety as well in younger people. That's definitely something that we've, I've, um, I was, I was actually, it was one of my best friends. We were chatting about so this project that I was working on and she was saying to me, her son came home from school and he was just so anxious after having this climate change talk. And that's so wrong. That's, that's so wrong. You know, it's not, that shouldn't be children's responsibility to carry that burden so that message of selling it in a positive way and showing positive things that you can do but really simple things that you can do because just echoing what you're saying like here in the UK it's very hard to understand where climate is changing you know we're very lucky we have every single food type that we like in the in the shopping aisles we don't really feel it. We might uh, we might complain if it rained a bit too much or if it gets a little bit too warm, but we still, we're not fully living climate change. We're a further field. Oh, right. Losing your land, you're not climate refugees. We're not, yeah, we're not climate refugees. We're not. And maybe we will become them. And if projections are correct, it's quite likely that we will. With flooding and sea level rise. Yeah. And also as well, another thing that has been about um, discovering careers that can help with climate change. So if somebody would like to help that actually steering children to know, do you know what? There are so many amazing things that you could learn. So you don't just have to learn about the climate. If anything, we don't really want you to learn about the climate. What I want you to do is learn about green engineering or learn how to be a great communicator or learn how to go and find great little initiatives that people are doing, community projects. So so much, so much has changed for me. Loads of change. And I hope going forward, even more changes and I learn more and I get better at having that, for want of a better word, that elevator pitch, because you do not have a lot of time with people. Yeah. And and that's why keeping it simple and keeping it social, I think, are, are often the, the two things, because if you keep it simple, there's a couple of things that we can remember and we'll try to do something with that information. And if you keep it social, and that essentially means that you can do it with someone and it's less boring. And if you fall off, you can always get them to motivate you again and also spread the word. It just becomes easier if it's normed. 
yeah and I think I think as well like the I've often thought like the best people at forecasting or communication when I watch a weather forecast the best people that doing that are the people that deliver that information in a way where I haven't felt like I've had to listen or learn Mm -hmm. they've somehow given me that information as if I knew that I like as if that is a truth Mm -hmm. and I think that's the way with climate change as well if they can construct more and think about it more and try and find us really just simpler ways of delivering the information so that your brain isn't overloaded that you like you say you you that you understand what you're doing is just you just do it you just do it because everybody else is doing it it's just information that is there that this is the obvious thing that you should you know you should be doing yeah and 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 that's why I think just starting with small actions that you know it's sort of like a foot in the door effect where if you start with one small action that might make it more likely that you take a slightly more difficult action later and that's really how we build habits so there's no way out of it but doing it and and that means repeating the behavior Mm. so it's better to always start really small and make it easier for yourself and then that's the way you really change Mm. and I think even if it feels like a big deal I think in some ways if you think about what the consequences and benefits are it might seem like a bigger deal than it is now because we're scared of losing our lifestyles or our culture but really we have to also think about what's to gain yeah and and I think that that could be one way of of maybe taking the pressure off everybody yeah <laughs> especially young kids yeah. that are I mean and actually was there was a BBC video of the day the other day I don't know if you have the app on your phone but there's this little section then the bottom one there's seven videos they're in portrait mode and one of them happened to be a girl from East Anglia and she was talking about climate anxiety. That's a big, big issue. We find that young people everywhere across the world are more worried about climate change, at least those we can capture in the surveys. Of course, you have to take that with a pinch of salt in terms of the populations we can reach, etc. But I think the 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 evidence there, at least the emerging stuff, shows that this is quite widespread. People are quite anxious. And it sort of makes sense, right? This constructive anxiety, which can spur you to action. And then there's the anxiety, which can be demotivating demo- and demobilizing. And I think, you know, the constructive anxiety, you have to focus on what you can do. And that means taking actions when you can or enlisting people, working with people to resolve some of that. But it's not surprising that some of the other anxiety, which is just the, the you know, the, the worrying because it's not unreasonable to see it because you can actually literally see less being done than it should be done and you're not powerful enough to stop it. So from that perspective, I think it does mean that we have to think through like what policy preferences do we have and how can we express those and articulate those, not just what individual actions can we take because often that's not going to be enough for the kind of structural change that we need. Yeah, that was just interesting. Before COP26, we had somebody come on and talk to us and work about it. And they explained beautifully about how in ways as well, the market will naturally, we need to push the market towards green, but it's becoming unpopular to invest in fossil. So naturally, the market will migrate towards you know, if you're not making as unfortunately as money making, but if you're not making as much much money or you don't see a future in the money that you're making, you'll change what it is that you're investing in. So change will come from different angles. We just need it to come quicker from everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just sort of caveat that by saying like, there's nothing natural about markets. It's, it's human made. 
it's shaped by politics, it's shaped by people's choices, it's shaped by investors, it's shaped by people who are in the labor force. That's the market. So while we can set price signals, ultimately the question of who sets the price signal, why they're setting it at that level, those are really the naughty issues. And that's where often we fail. So while there could be some sort of price correcting mechanism, and it could be working now, I think it's a bit late to rely on that. And and I think this does require like investments. It requires people coming together and governments sitting down and solving this and people coming together and saying, this is what we need. And this is what we want from markets, because I think markets are ultimately, they, they, they should be to serve and improve our well-being, right? Um, rather than the other way around. So in a way, I think that that while those forces may exist, they're ultimately put in place by the people in them. Yeah. God, it's complicated. <laughs> I think another way that I've noticed myself changing is I obviously come from climate change from a weather background, but I have noticeably seen myself sort of actively going out to find out how does climate change impact other parts of the planet? So how is it impacting the water cycle? How is it impacting biodiversity? And actually expanding my knowledge around that other part of it so that when I come from a climate change point of view, I can be like, well, it impacts the weather in this way but actually it has all these other impacts that maybe I never really thought about any of this sort of stuff like the timing of the bluebells and whether the bluebell season will still be around in a couple of years like those are things that if you explain that to someone they'll be like oh I'd never really thought about that I love the bluebells and it's sort of I think for me personally it's expanding my actual knowledge around the whole of climate change not just weather Um, And I actively now go out and find out how does climate change impact all these other things? Because nature and the planet is so important to me. And so I should know how it's impacting the planet. And then I can then, as I said, break it down and quite simply say to people, these are the impacts as well as the weather. It impacts all these other things as well. So given sort of the whole context of how climate change can impact us and the world around us. Yeah, and I think you guys are in a, in actually a really good position to do that because we often know that people used to confuse, I don't know if this has been updated, confuse the weather and the climate. Oh, the so time, people, yeah. Yeah, so people misperceive that, you know, the climate is not changing because, look, it's warm today. You know, the other or way... Or it's cold. Or it's um, cold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the other way, which is actually... Actually, I like a warmer climate because, you know, it's going to be more hot days. So great. Like, you know. but And that often, I think, could be an interesting segue into not making them feel like they're wrong, but actually saying, oh, do you know what the implications of that could be in a way that's socially relatable? And, you, you know, talking about things like bluebells, which is very like, I think, which resonates with people... In, in a personal way would be the way in because weather is much more personal than than the climate is and is a source of confusion so you guys are in a position where actually you could segue that way and so open up a conversation mm, we do gosh just as it consumes us we just constantly worry and talk about it all the time and how do we do things we are going to have to move on because I think I could talk to you for another hour so we're gonna push along to our get to know me round so Ganga Gemma has a couple of questions prepared for you, so just enjoy. Some of them a little bit weather-related, most of them very, very random. So (laughs) we'll kick it off with, what's your favourite season? Where am I? In the UK or 
in when I'm at home in anywhere. India, yeah, September. When I'm in the UK, it's summer. <laughs> why? Why September? No, summer. Oh, summer. No, no, September when you're when you're in India. Why? Is oh it? no, winter. So December. Oh December. Oh wow. <laughs> so like- I flip it around. But yeah, so in the UK it has to be summer. Right. Yeah. Warm. Warm. Well. Warm, sunny. You can go yeah. out. You can long do- days. Long days. Sunshine. Mm-hmm. yeah tea or coffee both <gasps> yes but which tea which coffee what time of day <laughs> okay for for tea minty at the Ooh. end of the day beautiful right chai in the morning okay or coffee in the morning what type of coffee if i'm making it it's black if okay. i'm buying it it's a cappuccino because i can't get it to froth so nicely at home isn't that interesting that's a big leap from a black coffee to a cappuccino you've skipped through the flat white on the latte there yeah, yeah. there must be something in the behavior of that. the chocolate <laughs> yeah. like I should have just asked for the chocolate that's all yeah. I was once on a train going from Goa to Delhi and we stopped at a station and they were selling little cups of chai yeah. tea yeah and my friend jumped off and got a couple of cups and came back on and it's the best chai tea I've ever had it was so good and like trying to replicate that has never been the same and I always think back to that time when I was just sat on this train having this t- tiny little cup of us oh, so good so I'll good recipe. <laughs> oh yes please <laughs> <laughs> if you were a fruit or vegetable what would you be vegetable but which type of vegetable this is not a vegetable but can I say a mushroom it's a yeah. mushroom not a vegetable it's a fungus See, I mean, I something new vegetable, so. you learn every day. I just thought that a mushroom was a vegetable. I just thought it was disgusting and I don't like to eat it. What? No. Mushrooms are amazing. Oh, they're oh. the worst. Oh, no. <laughs> they grow everywhere. They're so versatile. And one of the world's biggest living things is, I think, a giant mushroom. No way. I think so. And it's, I think it's a mushroom which lives in the US or a fung- like some sort of mycelium fungus type thing which lives yeah. in the US. I I'm gonna have to do a survey of did did people though that are like ask people is a mushroom a vegetable question mark yes or no see <laughs> I'm gonna do that I'm gonna do it on my Twitter and see see what comes back if if no, not if if not a mushroom I think I would pick an okra an okra oh okay a weird vegetable yeah I am um, very strange vegetable this is one of these vegetables that I sometimes see on a market and I think to myself not entirely sure what I would do or should do with that <laughs> I'll and, the recipe as well <laughs> yeah and and find myself looking at other and just yeah yeah I'm a bit vegetable naive We've got so much out of this podcast. We've got so much knowledge about weather and climate and behavior, but we've also got some really important recipes that are coming our way. So this has been awesome. (laughs) Fingers for toes or toes for fingers? Fingers for toes. There is only one person that said toes for fingers, and he was a builder. And he was was on his feet all day, and it made so much sense. It does make so much sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think that's such a disgusting question. <laughs> Every time Gemma, Gemma asks it, I'm like, one. oh God. <laughs> that's the weirdest one. That's the weirdest one. <laughs> this one is not as random. Sunset or sunrise? Sunrise. Yeah. Would you care to elaborate? Morning person through and through. 
I am. I, I, I'm the same as well. I'm, I'm like that, you know, stereotypical picture of the man, you know, returning back to beast as the day goes on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's me. It's just annoyingly chirpy and happy in the morning. <laughs> me too. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. <laughs> if you could invite one person to dinner, they can be anybody at all from any historical time frame. They can even be a fictional character. Who would you invite? Hmm. Anybody at all from any historical time frame. Ursula Le Guin. She is a really great writer. She's a storyteller. She's great. Highly recommend. She writes loads of interesting science fiction. And she, I think, also is really interested in like Taoism and Buddhist philosophy. She's really just a pretty much like a cool lady who I'd love mm. to have a chat with. Oh to go and check her out I yeah. haven't heard of her before no. well maybe I have and I just don't associate you know the way yeah popular culture you don't we don't always necessarily know well in general yeah. I'm just terrible with the names of people authors <laughs> yeah etc she's she's written a couple of really interesting books which I've really enjoyed reading yeah no she's a really good storyteller awesome and finally one thing that you wish everybody knew about behavioral science we always like to uh-huh. tweak that around what we're talking yeah, to people yeah. about but yeah behavioral science one thing I wish everybody knew about behavioral science that we don't know everything you know that we don't know everything not just about behavioral science but we that we also just don't know everything as humans like we avoid information we we have limited cognitive capacity we're not like infinite machines we have moods we get tired. So we're quite like imperfect and we're very social. So we're ultimately herd animals. Like we like being in a group. Not everyone does, but we most, most people like being in groups. So the fact that we're not like individual, rational, infinite capacity people, mm. which is often the assumption when we're asked to do things like act responsibly or have all this information when we forget, like, it means you need to be kind to be human as well, which means you have to make it easy for people. You have to give them a chance to explain. You takes time. So it's not just snap decisions of individual responsibility. So kind of like we don't know everything. And sometimes we don't even want to know everything. And we get tired and we just want to read and, and forget about it or chill. <laughs> so kind of to, to think about us as humans as, as, and, and not like infinitely superior beings. yeah do you know (laughs) I think yeah give yourself a break yeah give someone else a break and give 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 yourself time to understand things Mm. and it's okay that's a lovely thought yeah it's quite philosophical that I'm gonna (laughs) that's not gonna be my thought for tonight (laughs) where can any where can we find you if you want to follow you on your socials um I'm really crap on my socials but I'm gonna get better but I have a twitter handle at ajishri um and that that would be probably where it is the best place and if we wanted to go find your papers which journals do we dip into um i could i think the best everything's on my website so i can okay. give you guys that um link as well yeah, yeah we'll, we'll make sure to, to pop in the bio gonga it has been such a pleasure talking to you um yeah, great talk just so grateful for your time i've yet again learned so much more so i'm grateful for that and 
I know, Gemma, this is going to be another conversation about us going, I need to go and study more. It's been so fascinating. I I have learned so much. I've still got so many questions as well. I know. I think we're going to have to get you back on the podcast. (laughs) No, Um, thanks for having me as well, because it's really important to understand like how to talk about the discipline also with people who are interested and who care and who are trying to actually use that in their in their jobs and in their passion and their hobbies so it's really been great to have a chat with you guys well likewise we're just so grateful you (laughs) yeah you do what you do and and help us do what we do and just make us just better people really so yeah yeah thank you so much for joining us and we're so grateful for your time tonight if you've listened to this podcast and you've enjoyed it as much as we have, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate and review the podcast and share it with anybody you think would might like to have a little listen. On Instagram, you can find us there on For the Love of Weather. On Twitter, we are the number four Love of Weather. And we hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. Thanks for listening. Bye.